HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Sam Edwards. I'm third generation cure master from S. Wallace Edwards and Sons in Surrey, Virginia. We support the Heritage Radio Network because we believe in the cause and what they're doing. They're supporting family-raised livestock, small family farms, uh, certified humane, pasture-raised, antibiotic-free. Basically, we take the products from Heritage Foods USA and make them into uh, Serrano-style hams, prosciutto-style hams, bacon, sausage, like my grandfather did. You can find us at Surrey Farms. Dot com or virginiatraditions.com Hello there, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio, your host on Heritage Radio Network. And as usual, Taste of the Past will take you on a journey through culinary history. In fact, you'd think we're going back millennia, um, but how I've often said, everything old becomes new again, and we come right back where we started. We are hunters and gatherers, and today I have with me someone who has been gathering, but actually also hunting, for quite a while, and in fact, she even says that she feels she's at the crossroads of the Stone Age and oat cuisine. I'm talking about Connie Green, a forager and author of a a just-released book called The Wild Table. Connie is the founder and head huntress of Wine Forest Wild Mushrooms, one of the most highly regarded wild food businesses in the United States. She sells to fancy chefs and restaurants and gets her hands dirty in the dirt. And this book is is just an absolute revelation for hunting. And I would like to welcome you, Connie. Welcome to the show. Hey, Linda. It was wonderful talking with you last week. Uh, I had I got to sample some of the recipes. Um, Sarah Scott the um, did a lot of the recipes for you in the book. And last week we had a sampling at a restaurant here in Manhattan uh, called Print Restaurant. And I got to meet Connie. And it was wonderful to speak with you. So I thought you would be perfect to talk with us today about foraging. Tell me a little bit, how, how did you get into digging in the dirt for mushrooms and greens? Well, it started out with my grandparents, like many of our grandparents, were farm people. <laughs> Excuse me. And it ended up with 
just as a part of the life around my grandma and grandpa's farm was extending the boundaries of agriculture to gather things that weren't part of the farm, berries and wild grapes and sassafras and such things. So it's sort of been with me since I was a kid. Oh. Well, and, well, you do say that you, um, in the book, you said you, you use a lot of references to crossroads. And, and the first one that I, I saw was the crossroads, as I said, of the Stone Age and oat cuisine. Um, why don't you go into that a little bit? How, what, what do you mean by that? Well, I began by wild mushrooms like many of us. Oh, Lord, this would have been in the early 70s. Wild mushrooms were not a traditional part of our diet as Americans, but I married a man from Estonia, and Eastern Europeans are crazy about wild mushrooms. So I began adopting his and learning from him, and at that point finding more chanterelles than I knew what to do with, and taking them into restaurants where I found myself facing a lot of chefs that did not understand what spectacular ingredients these were. And it began in that way with sort of reintroducing or introducing a lot of American chefs to wild mushrooms that had been a precious part of cuisine in Europe and in Asia and many parts of the world except here, Mm -hmm. so that... mm, excuse me, Linda, Um, that chefs presenting them with a toy that they had no knowledge of and introducing it into into their very refined food so that chanterelles that now we think of as sort of a fixture of very fine restaurants, but at one time were quite rare and unknown. Well, uh, what I failed to mention is that that Connie is out in the Napa Valley in California. Um, And, in fact, uh, one of the chefs that she sells to regularly, well-known Thomas Keller of the French Laundry, and per se here in New York City, he wrote the foreword to your book. Yes, Um, he did. So when you first tried to sell to these chefs, you, you said you got a weird reaction. Um, and you mentioned cross another crossroads, the muddy jeans and twigs in your hair, um, <laughs> meeting up with the crisp chef whites and Viking ranges. I mean, you would just go into their kitchens? I did. And in fact, initially, the French chefs that I ran into were they were accustomed to getting their ingredients flown from Europe. So here I come breezing into kitchens carrying chanterelles that there were two chefs in particular who did not believe they grew in the United States when in fact... At this point in time, all these years later, a lot of the chanterelles that are used in Europe actually come here from the Pacific, Oregon, Washington, and California. Ah, <laughs> uh, the French thought they owned them, right? <laughs> yeah, well, they did indeed. And um, they were rather persnickety about the fact that ours looked different and so on. And at that point, I gave up on some of these older Frenchmen and turned to young American chefs at that point. And strangely and to kind of my amusement, some of these old traditional French restaurants ended up closing and making way for some of the chefs that we know and love now as part of the birthing of American cuisine. Well, I think it's so appropriate that, indeed, there you are out in the Napa Valley, and and you just said it, the birthing of American cuisine. We think of Alice Waters and Jeremiah mm-hmm. Towers and, you know, the, that whole movement. And so, uh, you know, what better place to be selling these all these natural wild foods than out there? But some of them, it took, you know, it took some doing because there was everything from 
Oh, boy. Uh, people not understanding that you have to thoroughly clean wild mushrooms because they're coming right out of the forest floor. To I remember one, um, these were never inexpensive ingredients, and I remember looking at one kitchen where they were, their people were prepping these, and they were cutting off the entire stem of the chanterelle and sweeping it into the garbage. And it was like, no, you know, it was the learning curve was fairly extreme. But boy, once people got the hang of it, there was no turning back. That's for sure, boy. That's it is. They're sought after items on menus now, and and usually the most expensive dishes. Well, they I would imagine they are expensive um, for the chefs to buy. I'm, I can ask you. I mean, you have to go out and or your foragers that work with you. I mean, this is manual labor, right? Going out and hunting these things down, and 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 an art and a craft uh, about how to get them. They must they must go for a pretty penny. Well, yes and no. Now chanterelles, because once you become, you know, a good forager, and in the case of ingredient, let's say chanterelles, since we're talking about that, they reoccur in the same places each year, so that. Once you've established where your patches are, if it's, it can vary a bit from year to year, but once you've figured that out, it's, it's a bit like farming, except without all that burden of a tractor and all of this sort of thing, you return to these same places. You take very good care of your patches. And I set a record once. It seems quite inconceivable to most mushroom pickers, but on one day I picked 265 pounds of chanterelle. Wow. So that with the abundance of places and people that now know where to gather chanterelles, chanterelles are not as expensive as you would think. Hmm. Well, and, I, know we, and uh, we, I find that we have them out here in the east as well. I mean, yes, they're not, you know, they're not just uh, out in the west coast, which, but there are, I'm sure there are some things that are just out there. Uh, now, your company, The Wine Forest, um, sells primarily mushrooms? Primarily mushrooms, but there's also wild berries. There's things like ramps, the wonderful ramps. Mm -hmm. There's things that are beloved in various parts of the country. For instance, back east, you all have not only chanterelles, but beautiful fiddlehead ferns that grow in the the ostrich ferns that grow grow throughout New England and parts of the Midwest. Then in the Midwest and mid-Atlantic into the south, Wild ramps that are one of the most treasured wild ingredients. It's a sign of spring, right? Indeed. And then morels that grow here and there <clears throat> unpredictably and trickily all over the country. In fact, the first wild mushrooms I ever ran into were in Madison, Wisconsin, where I transferred and went up to school. And here back in 69, 70, 71, the little farmer's market there, long before it was sort of sexy anywhere else, here, Midwesterners, I've learned, had been picking morels for decades and mm, decades yeah. and decades, long before all the very cool people in the East and the West caught on. That's right. Well, I, when I was a child, my, I had an uncle who um, had Eastern European roots, and he, indeed, just as you mentioned, he he was a forager, and he would bring back mushrooms. I would be afraid to eat, but you know, mm-hmm. he, he knew what he was getting, and the morels always did kind of scare me, but they were inevitably delicious, and that was, in, that was in the Midwest. Of course, Madison, Wisconsin still has one of the best farmer's markets, I think, in the, in the country. I um, think it's hardly ever stopped. Yeah, exactly. Um, what, do you sell 
to does your company sell to um, any gourmet shops, or is it strictly restaurant chefs at restaurants? You know, I'm lucky enough that I've sort of forged my own path. And, you know, part of the wildlife is doing things. There's an element of freedom to it that's very important to me. And I like selling directly to chefs. Mm-hmm. So by and large, I, find, I sort of avoid retail and I sort of avoid little markets and this sort of thing because chefs are just, it's a crowd of uh, artists and eccentric people and hardworking wild animals in a sense, many of these kitchen guys that I enjoy their company and I enjoy dealing with them. Oh, that's interesting. And can you share with us some of the the um, well-known chefs that you sell to? Boy, well, Thomas Keller is certainly well-known. Mm-hmm. Julian Serrano in Las Vegas, who used to be here in the Valley. Uh, Michael Mina and his restaurants. Mm-hmm. Boy, I always draw a blank on this because I'm fairly egalitarian about this sort of thing. <laughs> you know, well, I we think love to hear are, names. <laughs> I know these are star people, of course. Yeah. But um, well, I'll help you out a little bit of some of the the people who really supported you from the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm looking at well, you said Julian Serrano, um, Cindy Paulson. Oh, but of course, uh, Hiro Sone, yeah. um, Bradley Ogden. Yep. These are all names, and, and again, Jeremiah Tower, and of course, you know, as you said, Thomas Keller. All these names that we know of nationally as being yeah. you know, award-winning chefs and cooking fabulous dishes, and with your, with your hard labor, right? <laughs> yes, indeed, and then enough time has gone by that there's the generations of great talent keep coming. Now there's, oh boy, you know, some of these kitchens have It's almost like looking at a family tree to see some of the people that have come out of these places. Like now, Corey Lee has been here in San Mm -hmm. Francisco, who was at Per Se in the French Laundry. Laurent Gras in Chicago, one of the great food technicians in the world, and so on. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, it's really um, a credit to them that they trust you and then to you that that you were able to convince them to not just buy from their suppliers, and obviously there were there are big restaurant suppliers who bring in crates and crates of of you know the mushrooms grown in someone's basement. But this is really, and you said that. Speaking of that, you say that a lot of people often ask you where you grow your mushrooms or how yeah. you grow your mushrooms, right? Um, and what, and of course, you answer. <laughs> well, it's it still is very difficult. It's. It's very difficult to people sometimes to wrap their minds around the fact that there are ingredients that are wild, that are only found wild, and it's just the way it is. And in fact, a lot of people don't realize the other, the other great wild ingredients are seafood, that people see those lovely fillets in a meat case and don't realize that they were fishermen risking their lives out on the ocean um, for wild fish. And these are, oddly enough, here, these deep in the forest we're based, and then largely men out on the ocean in small boats fishing that we have so much in common. That's true. Well, actually, there, um, there are some dangers involved, and we're going to talk about some of the, the different uh, produce that you hunt and gather, um, and, and some of the, some of the dangers or, or perceived dangers that are out there after we take a short break. So stay with us. She comes, you better watch your step. She's 
clan Cause everybody knows The thing she does to please She's just a little tease See the way she we're back talking with Connie Green about foraging. She's the head huntress of, I love that term, of wine forest wild mushrooms. And, you know, one thing that you I know you have um, in the book some uh, recipes for and that we see more and more on menus today are sea beans. And way back, even before... Um, well, they're in cookery books from the, the 16th and 17th centuries in England. Um, they've been mentioned, and Shakespeare himself even mentioned, and that also brings in the dangers. Halfway down hangs one that gathers samphire, dead full trade. And that's from King Lear. And samphire, of course, is another name for sea beans. Um, now, the English variety is a little different than the, than the American variety. Well, we have a couple different varieties. We have one that's the same that they have, and another where they're called sea beans. Is a it has many names: chicken claws, glasswort, glasswort right. You know, they're called all different things, and they have one over there that looks a lot more like the sort of bulgy segments in a chicken claw, huh. but they taste much the same. Yeah, kind of salty, and they're and they're dangerous to gather. In some areas, because there are, well, you describe what they're on the coast, so. Well, they're on the coast. It's not so much danger unless you're fearful of something. If you've had a bad experience with quicksand, perhaps, but <laughs> it's not tidy. you got to go out and get very muddy, and you also have to be careful about where you gather them because you want to stay away from any place that used to be an industrial area, like, for instance, the mouth of the Napa River looks beautiful it's just just this grand estuary where you can canoe around like mad and it's lovely and there's sea beans growing everywhere but for a hundred years they tanned leather there so the mud there has plenty of chromium in it for Mm. instance and you know the legacy of what was there before and for instance i don't gather any there because of that so another one of the dangers i mean i know well i was thinking of craggy you know, rocky coast, I guess more the rock samphire or rock sea beans. Well, in some of these low places, your danger is getting the rubber boots sucked right <laughs> out from, from your feet, which is a comic, actually. It's happened to me many a times, and you're wrestling, trying to wrestle a rubber boot that's stuck two feet into the mud. Well, and for and most farm people have experienced that somewhere, and right. it's usually not something quite as clean as mud. That's right. <laughs> well, and you mentioned something which any of us who've gone out in the woods, even for a walk, if not, you know, looking, usually we're looking straight ahead, but looking down, looking for mushrooms, you mentioned that it's very easy to get turned around and lose your way. That's another danger, right? It is, particularly in flat ground. Like, there's an area where Matsutake are being picked now, and it's a place that I'm lucky to be born with an excellent sense of direction, but when you get into a flat forest where everything is um, all pine trees and all in the same direction, and, um, you know, foragers do get lost. It happens every year, and it's this is why, I mean, GPSs are an incredible blessing. It's a modern, wonderful tool, but even a compass is mighty useful because it's a, a nasty, unpleasant, fearful thing to get lost 
and drift off in the wrong direction for ages. And this is something that when people go off hunting alone, you need to be mindful of before you set out. Mm. Well, now you, obviously, you cannot do all the foraging yourself with all the, no. the restaurants you have. So you have a, a group of foragers that works for you and with you? There's a, there's a, we have a sort of strange tribe that's sprinkled throughout the West and even some folks up in Nova Scotia. Like, for instance, there's a small town up in the Olympic Peninsula where a partial people that are employed less and less in logging. And there's a group of about eight folks up there that pick chanterelles for me every year. And then I've also got another little tribe in, in some various places. And then in addition to that, I think of them as my beloved mushroom cowboys, These uh, a series of about a group of about ten fellows that drift around the West. And this is particularly useful with morels because you never, morels rarely occur in the same place year after year. Hmm. Well, you, you refer to the picker camp or forager yep. camp. Describe a, a setting of, of that. It sounds like you have a good time. Oh, we do indeed. Um, well, particularly in the case of morels, when so we have this past summer, there won't be a great deal of it this year, but when there have been huge fires in the West, wherever the site of those fires were, come spring, generally in May, this is when people start drifting into those areas and there are you set up in the you set up in the woods. These are usually vast areas, often inconceivable for people back east, for you to be sitting in a um, in a national forested area that could be hundreds and hundreds of thousands of acres. Mm. And um, bringing is setting up camp. Um, in some cases, bringing screens and so on to deal with um, drying morels. And being very, very self-sufficient at that point. So how long do you, would you stay, let's say it's the season and, and the morels are you know, popping up, how long would you stay in a camp picking? Well, in the morel camps, if, it, if it's the morel season, for instance, that can go on for at least three weeks in one place. Hmm. In Alaska, where it takes place, um, Alaska goes much faster the difference in Alaska, however, that's very challenging is that it's hard to stop picking. And when the sun is up 28, 21 hours a day, it ends up being very exhausting, and people try to pick mushrooms as fast and as long as they can. And um, it's, oh, boy. Then you have um, to carry them all back. One right? of the main tools, one of the tools that's very useful is, um, is goggles for your eyes to make yourself stop and go to sleep. Oh wow! Yeah. Well, you you mentioned um, the you call as you call it the fundamentals and etiquette of foraging, and and I would take this to be sustainable practices. Yes. And uh, what so what are the sustainable practices of foraging? Well, sustainable practices is you take in the case of mushrooms, for instance, you end up uh, taking very good care of the sort of the skin of the earth where they're growing. You pick the mushrooms. You cover up after you've picked, cover up the duff slightly. You do not get in there with a rake and root around through the dirt trying to find up every little button that's in the ground. And in the case of, for instance, something like ramps, which is a much more sensitive ramps or a wild leek or a wild onion that grows in great glades in a great portion of West Virginia, Wisconsin, all over the place. Mm -hmm. These are bulbs, and when you pull up, the entire ramp, 
you don't clean out an entire area. You can pick in, in little clumps and little strips so that you're it's like thinning out le- your garden, sort of. Right? Yes, yeah. and you're always leaving a good portion of these to sort of fill in from the areas you've removed them. Mm. And in the case of, let's say, fiddlehead ferns, the little fiddlehead scrolls are coming out of the fern. With each plant, with each clump of the plant, you never take them all. You've got to leave at least half of them. It's wise to only take like three fiddleheads per plant and then let it go. And then you have something that you can go back and harvest year after year after year. And a sharp knife for the mushroom so you don't take the whole the whole thing with you, right? People, that's a bit of a, you know, people have different schools of thought about this. Mm. And um, in some cases, a knife is good. In other, you pull up the entire mushroom, trim the little base off, and so on. Keep it down. Well, good lessons to learn before people go out. One thing that surprised me, and you mentioned the pine trees, were the evergreens. You you have a whole um, section on spruce tips and Douglas fir tips. Mm-hmm. Mm, what do you do with those? I would never have thought to use those as an edible source. Well, I know it sounds very particular. You know, it sounds very peculiar. But um, in Alaska, they have a very nice tradition of spruce tip syrup. And I ran into that many years ago and found it absolutely delicious. And there's, um, you you can, in spring, just nip off a little piece of this and taste it, and you'll taste this beautiful citrusy flavor. Now, these are the pale, pale green little new sprouts that come out of the tips, right? Right, Mm. and there's a little extra bonus to those. There's a logic behind that, which is, in the far north, where vitamin C is not particularly available, these are intense sources of vitamin C. Hmm. And I would, certain foraging animals, certain browsing animals, will nip off these little tips as well. And it varies from tree to tree as to what it tastes like and from conifer to conifer. But out in the west, we have Douglas firs, and they have a particularly delicious flavor, but they... Each one is a little bit different, and I've got, in the book, there's um, beautiful photographs of fur tip martinis, because I've <laughs> that's everything that's from, that look nice. from something as, um, as oh, civilized as Douglas fir tea, which you can do, which is quite lovely, to infusing those tips or even the mature needles in vodka, Keeping this for a while, doing a uh, fur-infused vodka. Well, and the photograph, it, sh- it showed it turning a beautiful green color. Yeah, it is, it's actually lovely. And then you can leave a little tip floating around inside the martini glass. Or you can do something that's a bit perhaps more useful and make a syrup out of this. Mm. And then use that syrup and put some aside, save it for Christmas, and have it for pancakes or waffles. Oh, interesting. Oh. Or even add to, I can see even mixed drinks, a little of that spruce, mm-hmm. about spruce tip syrup would be nice in there. Uh, now, certain things that you that you talk about, you know, I, I am jealous of your location. I mean, things that we don't get out east here, and huckleberries, that's one of them. Huckleberries are something that you that you get, and we don't... We don't get those out here. Well, you have wild blueberries. Wild blueberries, we do. Yeah, but the huckleberry is a little different, yeah. Huckleberries, we have two kinds of huckleberries. We actually have more than two kinds of huckleberries here. You actually have something called a huckleberry there, but and the wild blueberry, but these things are so closely related. Hmm. 
that my understanding is most people I know back there prefer the wild blueberries to your strange little version of the wild huckleberry, which has little seeds in it. Lots of, lots of seeds, yeah. But, um, you know, it, it sort of brings up the issue of one of the wonderful things about the diversity of habitats in this country is that, and it was a challenge in the book to come up with a spectrum of things that if you're sitting in Maine, you could find some of these things, or you're sitting in Washington State or Idaho. But we all have these, you know, delicious little local specialties. Hmm. And while blueberries, my heavens, you yeah, know, well, that's, we're very fortunate yeah, to well, have little, a lot the, of those. The little low-growing bushberries, yeah. When you talked, um, aside from the sustainable foraging, you talked about seasonal foraging, and you mentioned five seasons. Mm-hmm. Well... What's your fifth season? The fifth season is Indian summer. Ah, and yeah. Indian summer is a funny, it's a little limbo land between summer and fall because there's so many wonderful things that occur during that gap in time, which there's an awful lot of us that it's our favorite season. This True. strange transitional zone. So uh, th- there were things that just fit in very tidily there. So we've included that as a season. Okay, so it's November in California in the Napa Valley. What are you looking? What are you looking for now? Oh, because we have here's another odd thing about our seasons out here. We have a dry season and a wet season, uh-huh. and our rains have just begun. So right now. Many of us, in fact, I was already looking at some stuff online as we were communicating between each other. Everybody is keenly beginning to watch for fresh porcinis because uh, after the first big rains come, this is when porcinis occur out just here. pop up, right? <laughs> yes. Wonderful. And, they can, and the I, world comes to life, and there's a coating of green already starting. We even, as your world back there starts falling asleep, our world is really coming to life with a lot of the delicious wild greens as well. Oh, wonderful. What, for you, what is the most, well, to you it's not unusual anymore, but for the, the general public, what would be the most, probably the most unusual thing that you forage regularly? Hmm. Maybe I already mentioned the, spr- the, the, the spruce tips and the Douglas fir tips. But that, I think the spruce tips and, yeah. the, and things are pretty unusual. We have a funny mushroom out here that... I'd really thought long and hard about whether to include this in the book and went ahead and just did it. We have a little bitty mushroom that grows out here that exists just in a little band of the coast, coastal Oregon and down here into sort of midway through California. It's a little small russet-colored mushroom that tastes like maple syrup. And that is greatly loved out here. It confuses the hell out of a lot of chefs. Is that the candy it's, cap? or Yeah, that's oh, the candy, candy cap, cap mushroom. Yeah, beautiful pictures, yeah. And it's an unusual mushroom in that it's used primarily for dessert. Huh. A dessert and mushroom, And it is profoundly maple literally two mushrooms on your dashboard, which will dry out as you drive along, will... When people get into your car after that, they are perplexed as they can be as to what in the world, why your car smells like maple. <laughs> well, I have to say that the pictures are beautiful. All the photographs in this book are are tantalizingly wonderful. I mean, from being from the being feeling like you're in the middle of a juniper bush to um, a muddy forest to the wonderful recipes that Sarah Scott has has developed. 
just wonderful photography and wonderful descriptions and your prose i would say is a nice dreamy prose i love reading your words <laughs> about about your experiences it really it sort of makes you feel like it's it's a a wonderful fun thing to do and one thing that you said that i i really loved and, and that is that the the foods that you forage make today's heirloom varieties seem like they were born yesterday so indeed we've sort of gone full circle from all these, you know, trying to bring back things and growing them and, and finding new varieties to going back to the earth and, and using exactly what was supplied and what our ancestors ate years and years ago. So I thank you so much. And once again, I want to mention the name of the book. It's called The Wild Table. And it's Connie Green. And Connie Green's company is called uh, The Wine Forest Wild Mushroom Company. And I want to thank you so much, Connie, for being my guest today and thank our listeners for joining in. Again, I'm Linda Palaccio, and this has been A Taste of the Past. Thank you for listening to A Taste of the Past on Heritage Radio Network. Later on today, 1 p.m., guys, we have a live farm report. And uh, I want to remind you all to vote on the Eater New York Restaurant of the Year Awards. Our very own Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn, has been nominated for New York City Restaurant of the Year. So go to ny.eater.com to vote for Roberta's. And remember to follow us on Twitter for news, updates, and giveaways. The handle is at HRN Updates. Thanks for listening. <laughs>